0: This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. On today's show, we spoke with Ben Altham about federal politics, Marika Soznovsky and Darian Trainer about their trip to Jordan and the Syrian refugees that they met and captured in photography and through their research. Then we spoke with Dan Cass, who is a strategist at the Australia Institute, and he discussed his piece in Mianjin about solar energy and the democratisation of solar. Finally, we spoke with Kendra Morgan from the Heidi Museum of Modern Art and she discussed their latest exhibition, Charles Blackman Schoolgirls. And you are listening to 3 R with Amy and the show Uncommon Sense. And right now I have Mr Ben Eltham with us to talk about federal politics. How's it going, Ben?
1: Yeah, good morning, Amy. How are you?
0: Good, good. And uh, loving this weather, are yeah, we? Yeah,
1: I, I actually am enjoying the, a little you bit You would of feel rain.
0: right at home, wouldn't you, in this tropical it climate? Is, it is a
1: little bit breezy, this kind of weather. <laughs> it yeah. is,
0: yeah. <laughs> I'm not so happy about it, but I do like rain, so there you go. Um, so... So, Ben, well, a lot has been happening in this week. It certainly has. And I think, you know, you almost, I think it was we just chatted and then we had an announcement from Jay Wetherill um, about energy policy in South Australia. And this is something that kind of we knew he would have to do something because uh, South Australia have had, was it two blackouts already in the last kind of year or so?
1: Yeah, well, there was the storm in September last year, which was, of course, you know, mainly to do with the, uh, you know, the the big storm that they had that, that, that did cause a blackout, and yeah, and they had rolling blackouts in January, um, which most people think is actually the fault of the energy market operator.
0: Exactly, and so his plan is well he said uh, the energy market doesn't work anymore and we're not happy with it. Um, And that's one of the key uh, points of contention between himself and Josh Frydenberg, the federal energy minister, is whether the energy market is working for um, the state's
1: yeah, pretty extraordinary intervention from the South Australian government. Basically, they've decided to re an element of the South Australian energy system. So South Australia is going to build its own gas plant, a peaking gas plant that will uh, just be there for emergencies when they need to fire up more energy. Um, they're also going to tender for 100 megawatts of battery storage. Uh, so Elon Musk or Australian entrepreneurs who are building batteries can get into that. Um, and we'll see... Uh, you you know, perhaps some really big uh, battery slash renewable tenders go in for that. So, um, yeah, and, and the other thing that was really interesting is they're going to legislate to be able to take over the operation of the grid when they need to from the Australian energy market operator, which is the national operator of the grid. Mm. So, um, some very strident criticism of AEMO, the market operator, in that press conference. And yeah, there's no other way to say it. South Australia is turning its back on the national electricity market. It believes that it has failed South Australians.
0: Has it failed South Australians? Yeah,
1: demonstrably, yes, uh, absolutely. Um, And
0: for the listeners who aren't quite across how the national energy market works, I know this is a bit of a minefield in itself, but could we do the (laughs) (laughs) one-minute
1: version, putting you on the spot here? It is not easy to explain the national electricity market. And one of the reasons why we get into such a muddle, I think, on energy policy is that it is quite complex. Uh, But, yes, we have a national electricity grid on the east coast Uh, it doesn't get over to western Australia for obvious reasons it's too far Um, and basically it's all linked up with um, big transmission lines and um, you know fossil fuel generating plants and renewables um, and wind turbines in South Australia and it's operated by uh, an industry body called the Australian Energy Market Operator Uh, and then confusingly it's then regulated by a separate body, the Australian Energy Regulator and then there's a third body, the Australian Energy Commission that nobody seems to know what it does Um, And if you're getting the the idea that energy is quite complex and no one really knows what's going on, then join the club because uh, a lot of journalists really struggle with understanding energy. Uh, But perhaps the most important thing to understand about energy uh, is the so-called merit order effect. And this basically just means that... uh, in any five-minute period all of the energy generators in the grid bid in like in an auction to supply electricity to the grid um, and that sets the price over a 30-minute time period and it's this particular five-minute rule that's one of the most controversial aspects of the grid because that's the one that's allowing the fossil fuel generators to rot the system and essentially jack up prices.
0: Yeah I mean it's an artificial pricing and the other issue that we see feeding into this is gas exports, which are, um, you know, we took, well, <laughs> there has been discussion about gas shortages, but it's not necessarily a shortage of gas, but a shortage of gas being sold domestically um, as opposed to, to other countries.
1: Yeah. So about five years ago, the federal and the Queensland governments decided to build Uh, or to let private companies build a massive liquefaction plant. In fact, there are three of them in Gladstone. These liquefaction plants allow natural gas to be liquefied and put on a ship and sent overseas. And what that did was basically open up the Australian gas market to export. So the problem for Australia is that before that, the price of gas in Australia was quite low. Now the price of gas in Australia is set by the international market. So um, basically all the gas in Australia is now getting sold to Gladstone and put on a ship and sold overseas. And that means that even though Australian gas production has been going up and up and we've been producing more gas, we've been fracking in Queensland and doing all sorts of exploration, um, it's all been sent to Gladstone and it's all been exported. And consequently the price of gas in Australia has risen. It's risen Mm. quite substantially. In, In many cases, in fact, it's tripled.
0: And one of the interventions that Jay Weatherall has included in his plan is something where the South Australian government will subsidise companies to explore for gas and if they find the gas that they, as part of the agreement, get first dibs on it.
1: Yeah, well, I think that that won't achieve too much in the short term. I mean, exploring and then producing gas takes many years. I mean, this is just a function of Australia's very, very free market approach to energy, really. I mean, uh, Australia's uh, whole system of energy has been basically to let the market rip to allow big corporations to to set the price for energy and that's what's happened with gas. You know, these very, very big energy companies, mostly overseas, have come in. They've spotted an opportunity to sell a lot of gas on the export market and that's what they're doing. And mm. I might add Australia's getting very little tax out of this, this gas as well. Um, in contrast to other countries which uh, uh, take a more sensible approach, you might say, to their gas uh, production and actually tax gas with royalties. But um, in Australia, there's very, very light taxation um, and so we're not really even seeing that much money coming out of this gas Mm -hmm. boom.
0: Well, I mean... All resources are finite resources apart from the sun and solar energy and wind, Um, but what we get out of the ground is generally limited uh, in some regard, so I think that we probably do need to start jacking up our taxes, don't we, Ben?
1: Well, let's just mention the obvious problem of gas, which is it's a hydrocarbon, uh, therefore made of carbon, therefore polluting the atmosphere, um, and it's a big issue. Um, Obviously, I mean, the the Great Barrier Reef is dying. Mm.
0: Um, And we saw more bleaching.
1: Yeah, we've seen yet more bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef. At the same time, we've seen the Australian and a lot of the state and territory governments go hell for leather on gas and coal. So, you know, energy policy is in a pretty terrible state in this country, unfortunately. And um, the federal government has a lot to answer for, particularly after 2013 when they dismantled the existing system of carbon regulation that we had under Julia Gillard and didn't put in place anything really. So, the, the you know, the, um, under Tony Abbott, we got rid of the carbon tax. Uh, we got rid of any regulation for carbon pollution, uh, but we did nothing really to ensure the security of Australia's energy supply. And what's causing the energy problems apart from the gas price spike is that these big coal plants that have been operating for 40 years are starting to shut down. So we've seen Hazelwood announce that it will shut down. Um, and this was predictable, entirely predictable, and but it
0: still is.
1: <laughs> it's going to. It's it's about to happen. Yeah. It's been about to happen for many years. I mean, the gas thing was predictable too. Uh, and federal governments have done nothing; they've sat on their hands. So this really is, I think, the coalition's fault. <laughs> yeah. And um, and that you can see them scrambling to to try and come up with some solutions, really on this, you know, on the fly. Policy uh, thought bubbles. Policy on the run again. That's a good. I think that's a good description of Malcolm Turnbull's announcement late last week about expanding the Snowy Hydro scheme. Yeah. Uh, so the idea here would be to expand the hydroelectric component of the Snowy Hydro um, to produce... Uh, basically, it would have more water in the dams and that would produce more energy and it would have more storage, if you like. So it's stored hydro. Uh, It's a little bit like a battery. Um, Now, this would absolutely make an impact on uh, the security of the grid. It would help the grid because in those times when um, electricity is expensive, uh, for example, a very hot day when the wind's not blowing in South Australia, if you've got a, a big dam full of water, you can let some of it out and generate electricity using that hydropower uh, but it hasn't been thought through. Uh, the Snowy system is actually co owned by the federal. New South Wales and Victorian governments and the Victorian Mm. government wasn't even told.
0: Well the federal government is the smallest shareholder within those three parties New South Wales being the largest shareholder as you say Victoria wasn't informed and really this is an overnight policy it was just literally on the fly as far as anyone can tell. What is this some kind of uh, approach to become some brief nation building Prime Minister for a day and then to say oh well, it's just a feasibility study. Uh, We still need to see if it's actually financially viable as well as technically viable. You know, what is going on? Because, Ben, as we've seen since January when we've been having these chats, there have been uh, energy thought bubbles every week pretty much and we had, you know, super-powered coal-fired stations. Oh, yes, the
1: ultra-supercritical. Yeah,
0: and now we've got a snowy hydro expansion scheme which literally just happened. Is this just kind of a, a brief... um, I guess, announcement to distract everyone from the broader issue. And then, you know, who knows what will happen with the feasibility study and everyone will forget about it.
1: Sadly, yes. I I think that's exactly what it is. Um, And this is utterly in keeping with the Turnbull government, actually. Uh, The Turnbull government struggles to develop policy. Um, And and Turnbull himself has a real weakness for just making policy on the run, for putting out statements on the fly uh, without really any thought... Put into them, and we saw a succession of these kind of policy announcements last year over tax. I mean, who could forget income tax for the states? I mean, that lasted <laughs> that about classic. Th- that was about thirty-six <laughs> hours. Yeah, um, you know, and, and a very similar kind of idea. You know, Turnbull gave a press conference. He got up and he waved his hands around and he said, "This will be remarkable. It will be incredible." You know, uh, agile, blah blah blah, vision. Um, you know, and within twenty-four hours, people started asking some serious questions or what the hell is it what studies have you done on it how much substance is there to this policy announcement and of course there was none and i think we're finding the same thing out with the snowy hydro mm. what policy has been worked up on this i don't think any has been done it's just something they've pulled out of the back drawer and thrown at the media gallery and said hey guys uh, look look here's a distraction from the fact that we don't have an energy policy
0: yeah and we're waiting for alan finkel to come up with something which we will then uh disregard
1: Well, yeah, I mean, look, Alan Finkel has been asked to look into the security of the grid and he's put out a very, very good interim paper on it Um, And it's well worth a read. And
0: that actually, didn't that recommend an emissions intensity scheme, which then uh, Josh Frydenberg mentioned and dropped within a day?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the government behind the scenes has been promising an emissions intensity scheme for some years. Now, Greg Hunt used to tell people, uh, anyone who would listen, that he was working towards an emissions intensity scheme while he was the environment minister. Of course, as soon as one was mentioned or somebody even floated it like Freidenberg did late last year, the right wing of the Liberal Party shot it down because mm. any mention of energy, coal, carbon, emissions, pollution mm-hmm. is anathema to the coalition backbench. Um, and so, uh, like so many other issues, uh, the coalition is then being really dictated to by the right wing of the, the liberal backbench.
0: And it continues.
1: It certainly does because today the government is unveiling the groundbreaking uh, amendment to the Racial Discrimination Act. Um, Of all of the important things going on in Australian policy right now, the most important thing that the Cabinet has decided on is an amendment to make it easier to racially vilify people.
0: Great. Yep. Awesome. Fantastic. Yep. priorities right yep. up there. Yeah. Yep.
1: So the earlier reports are that the government will be amending Section 18C, which is, yep. of course, the controversial section of the Racial Discrimination Act, the one that Andrew Bolt fell foul of, um, and they're going to be loosening that that clause of the Racial Discrimination yep. Act. So
0: instead of it being about offending someone, um, it and you have to be seen as harassing someone, which yes. makes it slightly more aggressive.
1: Um, that's right. I, I, I think, well, we've, we haven't seen the bill yet, yeah. but um, we've had earlier reports this morning that Cabinet has decided to remove the words insult, offend and humiliate from the Racial Discrimination Act and replace them with the word harass. So it'll be, uh, it'll be unlawful to harass someone but it'll be okay to racially insult them, racially offend them and racially humiliate them. Great. Yeah, yeah. so that's what free speech is all about, apparently. Mm.
0: Well, let's keep an eye on that, Ben, and uh, (laughs) see how how well free speech goes for this government. Well, if
1: you want to keep an eye on it, you can read the Australian newspaper. Oh, yeah, it'll
0: be on the front page every day, won't it? (laughs) Every day. (laughs) (laughs) Without fail. Thank you, Ben, for coming in.
1: No worries. Thanks, Amy. It
0: was fabulous. And you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR and uh, I'm Amy Mullins and I have with me two fantastic and very special guests with me, um, Marika Soznowski and Darian Trainer, And they are here to discuss a pretty important topic and interestingly they have first-hand knowledge of it, which is often rare when we talk about these issues. So I'm hoping that we can um, get some first-hand insight into the situation for Syrian refugees in Jordan. Welcome Marika and Darian
2: Thanks Amy, thanks for having us
0: Yeah thanks Amy And so first of all uh, your background, Marika, um, you're a Middle East expert and you're currently doing a PhD in um, the area of, I'll let you explain.
2: <laughs> sure, it's, it's PhDs happen. Um, yeah. So my topic is about um, how the opposition in Syria is developing governance structures in the areas that they control and whether that is actually influenced by ceasefires. So I'm looking at a few communities and the local truces that happened in those communities. And then I'm looking at um, Dara governor, which is the governor or or the province in the south of Syria which borders Jordan and that was kind of specifically the impetus for this trip that I did um, recently and Mm -hmm. then Darian and I uh, went together so that we could produce some stories as well for um, print media, uh, things like that.
0: Yeah well that sounds like your PhD is extremely contemporary and and relevant so (laughs) awesome that that'll be a great contribution Um, and Darian you are a photojournalist and your work um, should be quite well known to people Um, you took some um, images and I think you and Marika went together at some stage to Gaza is
3: that correct? Uh, I travelled there. You travelled there? I travelled there last year, uh, in yeah. a- April of last year, but had, had Marika uh, help me polish up some stories and do some work, um, when I returned. So I'd done some, I'd performed some interviews while I was yeah. over there and then had, uh, had Marika work with me on, on the stories.
0: Great. And, uh, and funnily enough, as I just mentioned to you, I was the one who presented you with your UN Media Peace Award and, um, they were some pretty moving photos. So yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I only real- realized that when I came into the studio this <laughs> morning, that was, um, yeah, it's quite, that's quite funny. Yeah. But, um, yeah. They're
0: good. That's an important award, um, you know, ceremony and that such great work was coming out of that. And a lot from the ABC and also um, the Guardian for their Nauru files and um, you being an independent photojournalist, how do you kind of approach that? Because obviously you've gone over on your own initiative um, to Jordan. What kind of is your aim in terms of a photojournalist, um, you know, taking images over there and what you want to do with them afterwards?
3: Well, I think uh, my interest in the Middle East, and and so when you read the papers or or, or consume media here in Australia, I don't think there's um, that greater coverage on it at times, so I went uh, to Gaza out of interest with the the Palestinian and the Israeli conflict, um, sort of simmering away for years, so I wanted to see it for myself, and then that's the challenge as a freelancer. You don't have sorry, the, the the big media outlets to support you and, and promise that your work is going to be published. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't go and tell the story. So I traveled over there to do that and then and then that the fight is, is is finding a place for it when you get back and pitching it around. Mm-hmm. And I think that the the thing that was more exciting about that award you mentioned was because someone had, had recognized the work of a freelancer. Yeah. Um, and that's that's still important because they're they're there to fill the gaps that that are not being covered. Yeah. Um, so you know, you, you have to thank those media outlets that give you a chance mm-hmm. um, and run that story. So, um, yeah, I think that I think that the work is still really, really important. Um, and that that was pretty much the trip that that we just did in Jordan. You know, we, yeah, we've got a few stories, powerful, um, powerful, strong women and female stories from from the camps in 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 Jordan. And and now the, the battle is to find places for them to, to you know for publication.
0: And just before I go to Marika, in terms of your, um, when you're looking at potential buyers and people who are interested in these stories, is there more interest from overseas news outlets than there is from Australian outlets?
3: Um, not not particularly. Um, you'd, you'd need to be well connected with some of those um, international outlets. Having said that, you know, Australia is so far removed and so far away, Um and I, I wonder at times whether or not people are conflict weary or war weary. Um, Syria and conflict has been going on so long now. Um, mm. How many stories are people going to read? But that doesn't make it any less uh, any less important. It's still going on, so these stories need, still need to be told. Absolutely. Um, So it's a battle across the board, whether it's internationally or or having it published in Australia.
0: Mm. Yeah, because I went to, was it England? Yeah, about two, no, one and a half years ago now. And pretty much every story on the nightly news was an overseas story and it was about Syria and uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and I was really surprised because I'm not used to kind of getting all of this um, you know information about somewhere else other than Australia apart from SBS World News which tends to actually fill that gap Um, but yeah just I just wondered and thought about that but yeah it's it's one of those things as you say Australia is so far away physically as well as I guess mentally we kind of can be in more easily in our own bubble, which is why this trip is important. Um,
3: it should, yeah, exactly. And it should dominate the media. It is a huge humanitarian crisis and it's it's um, just because we're so far away doesn't mean that we, we don't have a responsibility to be educated on it. So we should we should know about it and it should be in the news.
0: Yeah. And um, and we should be good international citizens, <laughs> which brings me um, to Marika. So when you um, decided to go on this trip to Jordan, um What are some of the preparations that you need to take going into an area which, although it's not a war zone itself, um, it still has some risks that are involved um, travelling to Jordan? So what are some of the considerations that you took, both of you, when you were going over there?
2: Mm, um, I mean, yeah, clearly Jordan has some travel warnings, although that said, we want to be very uh, polite to them. It's a very nice place and, Mm. you know, they're, they're actually doing it quite tough at the moment because of the conflict they've lost a lot of tourism um, money because of that because a lot less people are going there now. Um, that said, you know, I obviously for the university side of things went through an ethics process. Um, but for us personally, you know, we were very careful, like for example, in all our stories, we don't identify anyone um, by, na- by you know, their name. It's often um or Ab, which is like mother or father of... So and so, um, you and know, that's to protect protect their pro-
0: identity yeah. and their ability to seek asylum.
2: Yeah, um, not so or much. It's actually interestingly not so much to do with their protect, their security within Jordan. Mm. It's to do with security of their families within Sy- who are, might be still in Syria. Yeah. Um, And then, for example, other stories that we took um, that were a bit more sensitive, uh, Darian had to be careful about hiding their identities in the photographs that he took. Um, And other things, you know, for example... um, you know, we were quite careful in terms of all, you know, encrypting data, um, sending it back home, not taking certain things through airports and uh, things like that. Mm. So, I mean, even though it might seem over the, it probably is over the top in some ways um, for us, you know, data and photographs and identities and things like that are very important in what we both do. So, mm. we want to make sure we take that as seriously as we can.
0: Yep. And building trust.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, for me, this is probably just the first trip of a few uh, trips this year to Jordan. And for my research, so um, yeah, it's really important to me to make sure um, I build trust with people, um, and I do the right thing by people because they've shown us a lot of trust in in talking to us. Actually, so it's, mm. that's a really important thing that we were we were very careful about um, abiding by.
0: Yeah, and you, Jordan. Um, sorry, Darian mentioned um, great women in these camps so these are a lot of um refugees from syria and jordan has been doing a huge share of looking after um, syrian refugees much more than a lot of its neighbors have done and some have done nothing and so in these camps or in particular in zatari um it I just uh, I posted a shot on our social media which is like quite a a few years ago now but it was an aerial shot and it looks so sprawling and huge um is it really that big like how large is it what is the scale of Zatari camp and how many people are there?
2: Zatari is a really interesting place it's not the only refugee camp in Jordan Uh, the other major one is Azraq. um so there's now they say 80,000 people in Zatari camp uh and it's, it's interesting, when we were there, we talked to a lot of people that had said in the past couple of years, um, things have really changed in the camp. Um, and I think that's for two reasons. For the first reason is because there's become more permanency about the living arrangements there. So, for example, when the camp was first established, people lived in, te- you know, the UNHCR tents that you people have probably burnt into their minds but now they they have caravans and they've they've added on quite a lot of structure you know kind of more permanent structures uh to their dwellings and they've also started to dig you know sewerage there's quite a lot of sewerage uh works and there's electricity not for all the day but there is electricity there's shopping streets so it's becoming quite a permanent uh settlement and our feeling was and i think the feeling of a lot of people will be that this becomes a town Uh, Over time, Well, it is really already, Mm. but it will just become... Zatari itself is actually a very small town next to Zatari camp and the camp itself will just basically subsume the town and this will become Jordan's fourth largest city, I think. Um, The second reason is that now the war in Syria has entered its sixth, just entering its seventh year, so we're just having the sixth anniversary of the start of the uprising. And um, a lot of the people that have come to the camp have now been there, you know, in excess of three, four, five years. And that's not long in the scheme of things, but at the same time, I think there's a psychological shift within them that uh, this is kind of a permanent, the the trauma, maybe the immediate trauma of leaving their homes and because of the conflict has kind of softened a little bit. Obviously I'm speaking generally, not for everybody. Um, And there's a sense that, they can now make their homes maybe in Zatari as best best they can. And that's not always ideal, but there's kind of a resilience and a purpose to their lives Um, perhaps that wasn't there, say, three years ago when the camp felt a lot more temporary.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And in terms of um, the people who are there, because this is a UN camp – and generally, um, you know, our understanding would be you'd go to a UN camp to be processed, um, to be deemed whether you're, um, you know, a true refugee or not um, and whether then you can be placed in another country um, or I'm not sure if they have an arrangement with Jordan to become permanent citizens. But what is, so as you're saying, is people have kind of looked past that and decided potentially this UN process is going to take too long and, and maybe um, the outcome won't be positive.
2: Look, you know, resettlement in third countries is still happening. Mm. Definitely, that's still um, a possibility for me- for people um but obviously we see it in our society in america in other countries the desire to have a you know a large refugee intake is lessening Reduced, and lessening yeah. all the time so the chances of and i'm talking about eighty thousand people that's just in zatari mm-hmm. that's not to mention the millions of people and refugees that are in draw in lebanon and in turkey um so to resettle all those people in a third country is a is massive undertaking that i think a lot of people have resigned themselves to that that probably is not possibly and probably not going to happen to them
0: yeah yeah
2: and in terms
0: of the um syrian crisis so um it doesn't does it have any sense of um building towards a conclusion because obviously uh, you know i remember when it's first hit on twitter and we were all tweeting about it but the media still wasn't picking it up and you know it took about two years for anyone to really take it seriously and start talking about this issue and the war over there but from your research in a from a phd sense you're looking at um the opposite side um as in the non-government forces um just for people who aren't up to date with what's happening in Syria at the moment and what's driving people still out of Syria and into such camps like Zatari you know what where are we at at the moment with the war and people um, are people still leaving
2: mm. uh, whether people are still, so people are still leaving but it, it, it it's dependent on the country so for example the border between Syria and Jordan has been closed since mid last year to, to all civilian Traffic, uh, so there's no more refugees at the moment entering from Syria entering Jordan. Uh, I think it's a slightly different situation in Lebanon and Turkey, for example. Um, in terms of like the greater narrative of the war and the conflict in Syria in general, um, to do with what you're asking, I mean the the conflict is, you know, it's definitely entered a new phase after the fall of Aleppo um, to the re- back to the regime. Um, there's definitely been, it's entered a new phase in terms of the rebels kind of consolidating their control of Idlib governorate in the north. Um, there's still quite a large rebel uh, population in the south as well in Daraa. Um, but I think more than anything, so I don't know if, I don't know if there's going to be a military solution to this conflict. I mean, people say, you know, there won't be, That has to be a political solution. I'm not, you know, um, not sure, maybe Assad can take back the whole country, but I think the more the point is the mentality of the citizens of Syria has fundamentally changed and that's not going to that's not going to go back to what it was seven years ago. These people, a lot of them have had a taste at freedoms that they never knew under the Assad regime, you know. So the the psyche of a lot of these people has fundamentally changed and there's been a lot of effort and, and not just effort and blood spilled to kind of get them where they want to go. So even if there is some sort of military solution, I think, you know, you can look to maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's 20 years, but the the kind of broader conflict is certainly not over, you know, in any sense. Yeah, and um, and so then looking
0: um, to you, Darian, about um, this trip to Jordan and the people that you're meeting in Zatari, so um, presumably you're looking... At people in a very visual sense um, and, you know, looking at the opportunities to be able to um, capture people as they are um, in the most poignant way, which is what I'm trying to describe as what I think your photographs achieved. Um, So, in terms of those situations and people that you were um, photographing, how did you approach it? Um, Because... Presumably sometimes you can't just literally take a picture and it be really spontaneous and then sometimes you might be able to. What was that kind of situation for you?
3: Yeah, um, the Middle East especially. um, I was really fortunate this time travelling with Marika to have that sense of, you know, just to break down that barrier. I mean, photographing women and children any time is is difficult for a a male. um, But... In the Middle East, it's it's um, it's 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 harder because of the modesty and and the, the headscarf and the covering the face. So often it was times you know we'd sit down and have a meal with people and chat and have them get comfortable with me um, being there. Um, but the thing that struck me um, in the camp was the strength of the of the of the women. The females still had. Um, an incredible role to play so they were still they're still the, the sort of matriarch of the family and they still had the food to prepare and they still had this sense of community and keeping people close so they were very bold very strong once you got to know them um whereas it was the men that seemed to be a little more stripped of of, of their role you know mm-hmm. um, if they were you know if they were construction workers back home in Syria. They were no longer construction workers as, as refugees inside a refugee camp. But the but the mother was still the mother. You know, she was still the powerful figure, taking care of the, the family and preparing the meals. And so the, the women actually, um, after you broke down that barrier, the, the women w- were quite easy to photograph in that sense. So, you know, it was just a, like any of those things, getting to know your subject and spending time with them, building that trust... Um, and then, and then the photos would come after that. And children, you know, you know a Westerner with a big camera, is like soon enough they'll, you know, they, they get pretty comfortable with you and then all of a sudden they're grabbing the camera and they want to have the picture taken and they want to look on the back of the camera. And um, so that was always pretty easy after just just getting, having the people get comfortable with you, really.
0: Yeah, and, and you're talking about um, the men and their roles or, you know, that they've kind of been stripped of that so how do they deal with that or what were your observations when you were seeing the men partaking in these kind of familial traditions and sitting around eating kind of what was their i guess demeanor and response in these situations
3: um i just think that this took longer For them to be comfortable with us, they were more probably a little bit more, you know, I don't know that the suspect is the word, but very cautious about why we were there and what we were doing. But having said that, there's there's still a a full-on economy inside the refugee camp. So there's people that run stores, and there's you know the bicycles are the the mode of transport. So there's bicycle shops everywhere. There's bakeries. There's you know so those that can and 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 find a way to making a living out of it. do um those that that, that don't have a skill set that suits that probably you know are diminished in, in some way um so it's it's a, it's a combination of it's a combination of both i think
0: yeah, yeah. and how do because we see some of these structures one of which you've posted on twitter um and it it is kind of like a caravan or a shed um how do people procure these materials and build their homes
3: so it's that, yeah, like Marika had said, Dattari um, started out as, as the as the typical sort of UNHCR tent camp, um, and then when they moved, when they decided this was this conflict was going on and on and on, that become more permanent. They're those, they call them caravans, but they're the sort of atco sort of site vans that you would see on a construction site sort of thing, um, and they're supplied by the by UNHCR, um, and, and when they moved to that, they sort of. They, they made the camp more grid-like. They put in paved roads in, in parts of it so that, that the waste trucks and the water trucks could, could drive through there in the winter because it's quite muddy uh, in the in the winter. So they've set it up much more like a town. It's much more grid-like. You can get around it, um, which, which, you know, um, Marika sort of pointed to that eventually we think it would just be a suburb. Like, it'll just be the town. It'll be more permanent, um, perhaps like some of the Palestinian refugee camps have become. And... So that the old UNHCR tent, once that person got a, a caravan, the tent would become sort of an annex. They would sort of figure out a way to make that an annex. And, and the thing is with Zatari that um, the, the the residents can apply to leave for, for you know, I think it's a 15-day sort of permit that they get. So they can actually leave the camp to go and buy things um, in, in the close, you know, in, in, in Mafrak or, or even travel to Oman or something like that. So they can buy some materials and, and bits and pieces so that, that they're really, they're really, really resourceful people and they've grafted and tried to make what's well, essentially a work van, site van um, into a home, you know, and, tra- and they still have pride in that. There's still, mm-hmm. you know, some with little gardens or a doormat out the front or, well, you know, the, the personal touches that they try to put on them and then each area inside the camp has a has a different theme. So them um, like like neighborhoods, like suburbs, you know, and they're themed up and the and the sides of the vans are painted, you know, and it might be nature and one might be education and one might be you know, so they they've tried to liven it up and, and make it look Um, Just take some pride in it. Yeah,
2: yeah. Like one of the families we saw, for example, um, so in their caravan, in their trailer, they had quite a big dresser, you know. And uh, we were told that uh, they actually, so they took it in, but because they couldn't take the whole dresser in all at once, because that wouldn't have been allowed, they took it in piece by piece. They kind of smuggled it in piece (laughs) by piece, so that they could have somewhere to put their crockery and cutlery and things like. And you know, like Darian says, make it. More of a home, uh, so those kind of things. And for example, another lady that we spoke to that had th- her own business as a seamstress, she'd used um, the flooring of one of the caravans. So they'd ripped up the floorboards, and she'd put that together as a cutting table. So just things like that. They're very resourceful, and I don't want to paint them at, in any way like they're you know fragile people or anything like that. As Darian said, particularly the women are so strong, and like I think they've they've in many ways required acquired a new sense of purpose um because of the conflict and because conflicts have a way of shaking up kind of social and gender norms as well so just the resourcefulness and the innovation that a lot of them showed and the, i mean and definitely the generosity that they showed towards us was quite incredible
0: mm. and then you're talking about i mean ingenuity and we hear from darian that they've you know created a marketplace almost um within this town um or camp but will be a town um are there, you know, schools, because we saw in some of the pictures um, of hospitals um, with babies, newborn babies being born, what um, kind of, I guess, infrastructure around schooling and healthcare was at the camp at that time?
2: Yep, there's many, many schools there. So that I think the they're trying to get most of the kids educated at least to a decent age. So there's numerous schools. I don't know exact the exact number, but numerous schools scattered around the camp. And who's teaching at those schools? Uh, I think it's, um, uh, my understanding was that each of the schools is kind of sponsored maybe by a certain country or organisation. And then I don't know, I think it's like you know, they employ teachers, obviously, but I don't know whether they're directly hired through the country or the organisation that runs the school. I would imagine that's, that's the case. Um, yeah. And then there's numerous women's clinics as well. We visited one of the main ones that's in the centre of the camp. And I mean, it's amazing. That was a quite an amazing experience. It was all quite large, all run um, primarily by women, which was great. Again, there was very few men there and you saw all the women just getting it, getting it done. It was running fantastically and they were very um, flexible and agile in terms of the kind of programs they were running like for example they told us a story of uh, initially they were giving educational classes about family planning to the women who were then meant to pass that information on to their husbands for example but they found that the message was getting lost between the women and the husbands or the husbands were a bit resilient to hearing it so they started classes for men so men now go to the clinic and receive the educational instruction firsthand and they said that's been a real success Um, in terms of educating the men about family planning uh, they do psychological sessions for women they also like Darian said have the birth many birthing units and a postnatal and prenatal quite a rigorous post natal and prenatal care there's been two thousand babies um delivered in the camp since the clinic at that one clinic since it was first established um and it's just amazing like it's run extremely well they give care packages to the women and kids um yeah so it's quite amazing what what they can what's there and what they can do i think
0: Mm, and um from memory when i was looking at the pictures it's not necessarily i mean it is kind kind of like a shed isn't it
2: The waiting area, (laughs) yes, (laughs) yeah, so it is quite, you know, like, it's makeshift by our standards, um, but it works. You know, like you have to remember, it is a different, it's very different society, even just in the cities as well. Um, yeah, basically, the waiting area for everything is now in a big kind of hangar <laughs> like building. Um, but that's good because it keeps them out of the sun, uh, gives them se- seats to wait on. It gives the kids place to run around as they're waiting, because it's quite common for the women there to have, for the families to have numerous children. Um, Yeah, and then there's clinic rooms off that and also separate from that as well. Uh, So it's quite a big infrastructure there just for that one clinic now.
0: Mm. I mean, it seems like they've done a lot with very little is what you're saying. And that's what comes across in the pictures is that they're doing really significant work um, you know, looking after babies and um, doing the things that we would expect in a healthcare system um, but, you know, still achieving it with such minimal resources. That's
2: right, yeah. I mean, even other aspects like Daryon was talking about the two main shopping streets. So, one they call euphemistically the Champs-de-Lisees and the other one is called <laughs> the Saudi market and... Um, we met some great women that owned like a kind of bridal salon for example there's a few scattered around the camp so they have these amazing colored uh dresses that brides to be higher out for the wedding and then at the back they have a salon where they can do their hair and their makeup and nails and everything for the for the wedding so that's being run mostly by well the one we visited was being run by uh, two women and you know they're 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 trying that's what she did in syria as well for 20 years before the war so she's doing she knows, and she's actually the main breadwinner for the family now, and she keeps the family going.
0: Mm, that's really awesome. I think that's the thing
3: that struck me. Uh, it, life goes on. You're inside a refugee camp. There's a there's a, a place that rents bridal outfits for people. People, so people are getting people married. people still need to get married. People's, people <laughs> still get married. Babies are still being born. You know, you still go down to the shop for bread. It, it's it, yeah, the life goes on.
2: Mm,
0: yeah, and and so just in terms of um, you know the politics within. Um, Jordan and the Syrians coming across there was one um, aspect in your um, work and your observations which is about Palestinians um, and that some people coming in um, you know there are still these tensions and that um, Palestinians for example are not necessarily accepted um, in Jordan and what was the kind of um, stories that you encountered around Palestinians uh, coming into Jordan as as refugees?
2: Mm, so it's quite, fraught, quite a different story in many ways for the Palestinian um, community, a little bit uh, tricky to understand because essentially what happened for the family that we met that wasn't in Z- actually Zatari, it was in a, in a camp outside of Erbid, another town in the north, they had been displaced from what is now Israel. Their families had been displaced from what is now Israel in 1947 and they'd uh, gone as refugees to Syria and living in Yarmouk camp, which is just outside of Damascus, a large Palestinian community there. And they'd been in Syria, so 70, their families have been in Syria 70 years or so. Um, But when they tried to leave... Syria via the border of Jordan, they still had Palestinian identity cards because it wasn't possible for them as Palestinians to become Syrian citizens. So they were denied access. The Jordan closed the border to Palestinians uh, many years before it closed the border to Syrian refugees. Um, So they were actually denied access into Jordan uh, and they managed somehow through the Free Syrian Army that was operating in the south of Syria to obtain Syrian identity cards and amazingly, they were able to enter enter Jordan with these fake identity cards. And now they, they actually live quite in fear uh, in Jordan of being sent back across the border to Syria, uh, mainly because the man had left a job at a, governor, a government ministry in Syria. So it would be quite dangerous for him to return, for example. And there's stories um, published by Amnesty and other human rights uh, organisations that say that Jordan has actually forcibly uh, removed Palestinian from Syria back into Jordan um, which is completely against international law so they are now living almost kind of a double life they've got these fake identities uh one the son for example is married and had a child in Jordan under his and registered both of those under his Syrian name um so they're in a little bit of a double bind because they can't um it can't uh, reveal their Palestinian identity and um, they, they kind of don't know, quite know what to do now. Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of comes from Jordan's own still kind of fraught relationship with the Palestinians as well because Jordan has quite a large Palestinian population already but... Uh, bolstered by the wars in 1947 and 1967 with Israel. So I think out of a population of – I think Jordan has a population of about 6.5 million and around kind of half of those, around 3 million, um, identify as as Palestinian and about 2 million are actually registered as Palestinian refugees. Mm. And because there's been past conflicts uh, between the Palestinians and the Hashemite monarchy of Jordan, uh, there's kind of a a tension – there of letting too many Palestinians back into Jordan.
0: Absolutely. Um, I'm speaking with Marika Sosnowski and Darian Trainer, And uh, just finally, Darian, um, in terms of the experience of going over there and taking your photographs, and you've shared some of them on your Instagram and your Twitter and Facebook, so people can check that out if they are interested. But also, what kind of did you take away from that experience going to Jordan? Because it's not the first time um, to the Middle East. Um, what kind of did you really take away from this particular experience?
3: It's it, it's incredibly humbling. It's to be allowed into. Uh, someone's life like that and and, and into their home you can't help but feel in in a a strange way you're very very privileged you're very very privileged to go in there and and meet these people and just admire their resilience and their their sense of strength and and character um it's incredibly incredibly rewarding and and the, the the flip side is coming home and and then going back to work, and, and you're just photographing whatever you're photographing, and you're thinking, "Well, am I am I making a difference, or is this does this even matter?" Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's you're blessed to be able to meet people like this, and, and, and it's inspiring to see how how resilient, how strong they are, and, and really a reality check for yourself. And thinking, you know what, we've am ai am a I'm a I'm a middle-aged white Australian. I might be in the luckiest demographic on the planet you know male as well so you know it's it's a real um reality check when you when you go and meet people like this Mm.
0: and do you think you'll be going back anytime soon
3: Uh, i hope to uh with with the stories from from uh from gaza and and palestine and israel and now jordan um i'd like to 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 meet some more palestinian people in in lebanon uh and continue the story there um bring back work um try and have it published in Australia. You know, I'm not going to influence government policy, but we, we don't have great policy with, mm, no. that, with relation to refugees in this country. So um, if I can help just just one person, you know, see these people as they are, as people. Mm. They're, not, they're not their country shopping and they're not, you know, they'd all go back to Syria tomorrow. Everywhere, everyone we met would go back to Syria tomorrow if there was no war. And, they, and most of them wouldn't have a house to go back to, but they'd go back there tomorrow. Mm. Um, and then the thing about the refugee camps, you see uh, other nations' flags everywhere because you know, this is sponsored by Australia, this is sponsored by Germany. Everyone pours their money into that rather than, you know what, we'll take them. We'll, we'll put them in our country, you know, so they, they'll, they'll pay for it offshore, Yeah. You know? um, so, yeah, it's a very, very humbling experience.
0: Mm. Maybe um, there's a book that you can put together because I, I can kind of imagine this book of resilience.
3: Yeah, I think originally I'd thought about a book on... on Occupation, uh, and, and you know, you could even tie in Indigenous Australia mm. and things like that. Uh, but this is going to extend. This is. Uh yeah as much as I try to get something published each year from these trips I think a long term project um, yeah there is there's probably a book and and I'll and I'll talk to Marika. Yeah. <laughs>
0: she
3: she can help me write it but yeah. uh, the the pictures the pictures are there and, and it's they it's are. a part of history and, and in my lifetime uh, the Syrian refugee crisis or the Syrian crisis is 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 going to be one of the biggest if not the biggest humanitarian crisis of my of my time so. Mm.
0: Well, thank you very much Darian for taking those photographs because they are really poignant and very um, natural. It's like you're not there, which I guess is the point. But um, yeah, you've really succeeded in that.
3: No, thank you very much, Amy.
0: And, and Marika, just finally, what did you take out of it? And, and obviously, we know you're going to go back to Jordan, but um, yeah, with this trip... What did you take?
2: Uh, Well, just very much to reiterate on what Darian said, really. That's very much what I took out of it. But also I think the privilege of working with Darian as well. Like this is our second kind of um, collaboration together after the Gaza collaboration. And it's a real privilege to write uh, text, to go with his great photos um, and to kind of continue that working relationship. That was something really great out of the trip as well.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you both for joining me and um, sharing these fantastic and really just interesting stories. And I think it does p- paint the human picture and of great strength and courage of these people who, and women in particular, um, you know, holding their families together and, um, you know, doing a lot of the heavy lifting.
2: <laughs> Thanks so much for having us, Amy. It's Thanks, been Amy. great.
0: It's a pleasure and you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3Triple R FM I'm Amy Mullins and with me right now in the studio is Dan Cass and he is a jack of many trades and uh, excels in all of them. We have here, he's a writer. He's also an associate at Sydney Business School and he's a strategist at the Australia Institute, that wonderful institute which people have the need to say is a progressive institute and think tank but I just think it's a think tank. So Dan, welcome and thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you, glad to be
0: here. I'll just have you point your mic up just a little bit there, thank you. So, Welcome and thank you for joining us. Pleasure. And uh, you're in here to discuss a particular piece that's been published in Mianjin, that hallowed journal in Melbourne. Um, and... It is, well, it's actually just been released. Has it only been out for maybe two weeks now?
4: I think the opening party is tomorrow night, so you can still book.
0: You can launch, you can be in the launch. Indeed. And is it Frank Moorhouse is going to be there?
4: Yeah, and he's got a great piece about writing and um, I guess the public purpose of writing and whether we should fund it directly through governments and how writers should be remunerated for their amazing work.
0: Of course they should. As, um, as they should so let's talk about your piece which is called the sun rises the democratization of solar energy um and how that might change everything and uh, i'm just going to just a minute just a bit. there we go just so we can hear your fabulous voice while you're speaking so solar energy we all love it or at least i love it and and it is kind of pretty to look at as well as um you know really charging the world Um, and wind power has also been part of this discussion about renewable energy and there's also thermal um, and wave technology which is quite interesting and still you know in its maybe earlier stages yeah it is yeah um but in terms of solar which as you say in your piece has been around for quite a while and in the 1970s um you talk about you know your um you know adolescence growing up and looking at um these kind of environmental books and um you know logos and mottos about how you know we need to um, consume less and be more sustainable and um, you know the sun and solar power was kind of a little bit um, extraterrestrial in the sense that it wasn't really um, it wasn't seen as mainstream it was really alternative in your um, you know when you look back on that formative kind of period for solar energy and how far we've come in a very relatively short period of time in kind of technological change terms what do you take from this um you know progression did you think that it was going to get to this point where we would actually it would be affordable and it would start being the mainstream
4: right that that for me is the really um incredible part of the story of solar so you know growing up in a very ecologically aware household in the 70s and 80s we we talked a lot about energy and it was seen as the alternative so solar and wind and so on were variously called alternative technology or soft energy or so on and the idea was that these really had to become um, the dominant form for moral reasons that we have to protect the planet and care for future generations and the thing that was amazing is I think in the past 25 years we've struggled in the climate debate um, to get governments to take action here and around the world and in some senses went backwards and had you know the Tony Abbott $100 roast lamb, big Mm. tax on everything scare campaign. And I think in some ways, while we were doing that, we lost sight of what was happening in energy and solar became cheap. It's as simple as that. It was expensive. And ironically, it was research conducted by Exxon Corporation in the 70s that brought down the cost from about $100 a watt US to $20 a watt US. So... And since then, the prices keep plummeting. So in Australia Mm -hmm. last year, solar panels were about 60 cents to a dollar a watt for quality panels. So the story is really quite an amazing one that solar went and did this thing that no one was really predicting and became the most cost-effective energy source. And so if you look at projections from the International Energy Agency, who are the mainstream industry, and uh, agencies here and the private banking sector and so on, they're all saying more or less the same thing Solar will win. It will grow even without subsidy to be 30 or 40 or more percent of global energy supply in short order.
0: Mm. And what you pick up in your piece is that, you know, yes, uh, our policy settings have been hopeless um, in terms of Australia. It's just changing every month as to what our energy policy is, how renewables fit into that, what our target might be moving forward, whether that target will actually do anything at all, uh, whether we're going to put a price on carbon or not. Um, That brings a huge amount of uncertainty for every uh, energy provider in the industry, but particularly tough for renewables when they are the, I guess, the underdog for, and they, they're not the, the established um, energy source. But then we've seen these um, homeowners embrace solar. Uh, they have roofs, um, which you can put solar panels on. Um, how, like, how have people really... Um, taken this up. Has it been Australians, everyday regular Australians who have driven um, the renewable pickup and really are they contributing the most to solar's success in Australia?
4: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the mainstream solar, um, you know, consumer love affair in this country is extraordinary. So we, for a number of years, were the biggest solar homeowner solar country in the world, which is extraordinary because we're a tiny population. We're what, 2% of the world's population. And we had more solar on our roofs than anyone, more than Germany, more than China, more than the US. So at the moment, and the figures are out of date already since we published this essay, you know, the figures keep growing, but there's at least one and a half million homes with solar photovoltaic. Mm. And there's about a million people now with solar hot water of various sorts and heat pumps. So it's incredible. And it's It's a revolution in energy that happened really without anyone completely clocking what it means for the political system. And it it, it is extraordinary because a lot of these people might even be on the other side of the fence on the climate question. You know, there are climate-denying solar patriots out there in the suburbs. And it's not just happening here. In America, there is a bizarre phenomenon called the Green Tea Party, founded by Debbie Dooley, who was one of the original teabaggers. And she's convinced that solar is the people's power and big energy is big government and big corporates ripping off the ordinary person. Mm. So it's it's a straight up Trumpian populist movement that is 100% behind solar, solar tariffs and energy market reform that help people um, have solar systems. And increasingly batteries, because that's the new game changer, the strange and Unusual story that the battery, you know, that Volta invented and showed to Napoleon more than a century ago, is now, according to the Economist, um, uh, the the technology of our time, and it, you know, it really is a game changer for energy because it gives people power, as you were saying. It's a democratizer of energy.
0: Yeah, because well, let's talk about batteries. It is really in vogue at the moment. Um, you know, <laughs> Elon Musk tweeting about batteries makes people start thinking about what are batteries. In this regard, not in the AA size batteries, you might stick in a Walkman if you still use a Walkman. If it's I still, still alive. have a Walkman. Do you <laughs> <laughs> I pulled mine out the other day with my sister and it still works.
4: Right. It's yeah. miraculous. There you go. I've got an Apple... Mac, an original or second generation one. I occasionally turn it on just to see that it's you know not degraded. Functioning, it's just yeah. The little smile and the ding. <laughs>
0: <laughs> see, battery's still relevant. Oh, um, but let's talk about the the large scale, Im- serious lithium ion batteries. Um, so, well, I guess it is the evolution of batteries and this kind of um seeking to build a large enough and you know strong enough to for want of a better word battery system is that what is um like is the reason why we came to that because solar is you know half a day when the sun is out we need somewhere to put this energy and is that some form of energy security in and of itself having you know really um rigorous a battery system that would store power for long periods of time?
4: Right. And and that's the big question that the NEM, the national energy market here, is struggling with. So we're moving from a system that is really an almost 19th century model, so big central power stations um, pumping out power one way to consumers, to a model where people are prosumers, meaning producer-consumer. So if you own a solar system and you put a battery in your building and then you connect it to some kind of smart control system in the grid, you can trade energy. You can actually arbitrage, so you buy it when it's cheap and sell it when it's expensive. You can be called on when the system is losing frequency and the security is dropping. You can be called on to suddenly discharge power to the network and maintain the quality for all the consumers in your area. So batteries at what they call the fringe, the edge of the grid, right behind the meter in people's homes, at hospitals, in buildings and so on, are very, very valuable to the energy network. And uh, amazingly, even more valuable there, the more decentralised they are than in very, very large substation installations that Musk is talking about. Mm. So they're worth doing at both levels, but interestingly, they are more valuable to the grid the further to the edge they get right at the consumer's point of consumption. So batteries are a category killer. And it's just interesting to note that Last week, we had the South Australian and federal governments announce a passion for storage, and in some sense, really reset the energy debate with some kind of vague bipartisanship for the first time. And I don't think either of them really intended this. No, but I
0: don't think that was intentional.
4: <laughs> no. I mean, if you saw the video footage of Wetherill and yeah. Feinberg, it was, it was not best friends.
0: Far from it. But good watching.
4: Good watching, yeah. interesting, yeah. Uh, Faraday cage match, ah, <laughs> um, dad joke. Yeah. So, but the interesting thing is both governments say that governments need to get back into energy mm. and this is an amazing and historic and uh, an important backflip after two decades of near consensus that we should be privatising and deregulating the energy sector and indeed all monopolies and public services. So that is an amazing moment as well.
0: Yeah. And is the answer we need more people being self-sustaining in their energy use through renewable energy and batteries. And then, you know, the grid is kind of there for the rest. Like, is, is that the way things are going? That it's really up to, it is the prosumer, as you say, who is being empowered, who's saving money, and who has a long-term um, solution to their energy needs. It's an investment in your own property. So, you know, you're adding value to your own property, but you're also saving money. Is that the future of energy in general like the energy mix.
4: Right, good question. Look, it's really inevitable that this this will rise. So the Australian Energy Market Organisation that manages the grid for all of us predicts that under one scenario 40% of homes will have batteries by I think it was 2030, might have been 2040. That's astonishing. That's an incredible investment and as you say that's money spent by the consumer, not by the government. So, in that sense, it's an incredibly—you would think—efficient thing for governments worried about budget bottom lines to get a free bit of fifty billion dollars infrastructure upgrade um, from the consumer. But I think the thing that's really interesting is that um, new finance models allow consumers to do this even faster. And this was, I a, a, a think, an important lesson when you start researching this, and it's in the essay in Meijin that. Um, Uh, lease models and power purchase agreements and all sorts of strange financial, you know, mumbo-jumbos that we might have been suspicious of in the past are now moving into the solar space and not just here but in very poor countries. So if you look at Africa, there are millions of people living beyond the grid, so there is really no chance that anyone is going to borrow the extraordinary sums to build baseload energy out to very remote, very poor communities But the thing is, they're already paying a lot for, for example, diesel and kerosene, for electricity or for light. These are expensive, they're polluting, they're unreliable technologies. It's actually cheaper for them to spend a little less than they're spending on fossil fuels, but pay through some clever financial system so that someone else has borrowed the money and built them the smart grid and they're just leasing or renting or paying like you would pay for your mobile phone a small amount per week or per month for their electricity. So, solar plus batteries, plus some new engineering and finance is making solar this unstoppable force, even in poor countries.
0: Mm. And in terms of like, we're talking about individuals and homeowners and potentially renters, people who have invested in a property and have put solar there, but Let's just quickly use as a contrast um, solar arrays and farms because often people think, well, Australia is a huge um, continent in and of itself. There's lots of open space. Um, It's not dense because we're creating density in our cities instead. Where are the solar arrays and farms? To what extent has that actually played a part in solar in Australia and should there be more of it as, as part of to complement individuals who are putting up their own solar?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So, you, you will see that the world moves quite quickly to decarbonise energy now. So, the Paris Agreement requires essentially that energy production is zero net energy by 2050, uh, zero net carbon by 2050. So, That's a huge investment. It will require large-scale solar and other forms of renewable energy. And Australia is starting to do a really great job there because of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and the ARENA. So ARENA funds R&D, and Clean Energy Finance Corporation funds the next stage, the commercialization level. And so large-scale progress in solar is moving rapidly here, costs are coming down, and innovation is rising. And also the new emerging technologies like you were mentioning earlier, wind, uh, not wind, um, tidal and, you know, wave and even geothermal and so on could very well become cost effective and they will be exclusively large utility scale technologies. No one's going to build a billion dollar um, geothermal plant under everyone's house. It will be somewhere um, in the desert probably, although there are also um, conversations about having... Even deep geothermal in places like the Latrobe Valley, mm. so so large-scale solar is absolutely part of the equation.
0: And who gets involved in that? Like, how do people make that happen? Because you know we've seen something like Hepburn Wind, where you know we've created a great deal of you know wind turbines and wind energy from a community group coming together and you know forming, I guess, a co-op for want of a better term. But you know, is there some way that communities can make that happen? And or are there other commercial entities who are actually looking at solar arrays and farms as, as part of their, you know, investment or, um, you know, business?
4: Look, I think most of the investment will come from private finance and the, the CFC and arena will play a big role here facilitating particularly early risky technologies. And then the, the next phase where it's about getting the finance sector to understand the product that's being sold to them, the large scale solar plant and so on. Community energy is incredibly important and exciting. So I was on the board of Hepburn Wind for a couple of years and, you know, it's incredible what communities can achieve when they sit down and get a plan. It's very difficult. Putting up a wind farm is complicated. I I suspect in the future there'll be more interest in community-owned solar and solar plus storage than in wind just because wind turbines are big, complex machines, they're expensive and so on. Solar is very easy to scale up. You know, communities can start by buying solar and putting it on a school in their town. And when it works, you know, build a bigger array and pop it on the Ford dealership or you know the Bunnings or what have you. It's a very easy technology to to scale up as you learn um, how it works and you get the skills in a in a co-op where you know generally most people are involved on an unpaid basis. Mm. It's important to note that in Europe, community-owned energy is a huge part. Of the distribution of uh, uh, the ownership of power in Germany and in Denmark. So, I mean, here it's relatively small, but if governments want to, and they are starting to push this. So uh, in Victoria and in New South Wales, the, the state governments are very keen on community owned energy um, because it gets the energy built and it also builds the social license of renewables, which is crucial.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so if we're looking, because I guess our particular audience I know are very engaged on renewable energies and wanting to be part of this. What about people who rent properties? Because that's, you know, one of the things is that a lot of younger people rent and even into their 30s because we can't afford homes. Um, what a shock, which we we talk about every week. Yeah. Um, but, you know, how do other you know people who can't actually own their own home get involved and... I guess, be part of the solar energy growth in Australia and be part of that.
4: Right. It it is obviously harder. Um, There are a number of things you can do and one which you mentioned earlier is you can set up a legal structure so that renters can um, put something on the roof and then effectively sell it, on-sell it back um, to the landlords and so on. Councils can become involved and declare um, the solar part of properties and titles and change the legal ownership Um, of solar and storage there's also amazing technologies so virtual net metering which sounds all a bit complex is a system where uh, renters can effectively buy solar somewhere else so if you live in a tall building and effectively you own you know a 50th of a roof which is too small to build enough solar for yourself you might all effectively invest in solar somewhere else next door maybe on a hospital that needs a lot of energy And some of the power that gets generated there is is, um, traded off against your own consumption. And so you're effectively an owner of solar somewhere. The third big option is you can simply invest in it. And I think this will become more um, popular here. So solar has been seen as very risky in the past, but uh, large um, impact investors are moving into it. So the impact investor group for example, has launched and fully subscribed a hundred million dollar fund for wealthy people to buy shares in effectively a solar fund. There's a lot more coming in this space. I think if you watch in the next few months, you'll see there will be products that allow anyone to invest money. So rather than having your super in dirty coal, you can put your super in clean energy, which effectively helps you know buy your power um, from a clean source.
0: Mm. And. Well, let's talk about some of the industry, I guess, regulations and um, I you love that industry regulation or almost makes you want to shiver talking about it, but APRA came out recently talking about the importance of climate change and that risk and the need for people to, um, particularly people in finance and, um, you know, corporates to really um, take account of that risk. And that was kind of somewhat of a new thing. Um, And Jeff Summerhayes, who is an executive member there, was the one who gave that speech. How much of an impact do you think those kind of signals to to Australians, but particularly to that sector will have on the growth of these kind of energies which reduce the risk of climate change, if any kind of impact?
4: Right. I think that was really important. So the, the, I think that the key document there is the opinion by Noel Butlin QC. And he, you know, is a fairly conservative, regular commercial lawyer who looked at directors' duties and liabilities and so on. And so effectively it's saying, if you're a director and you ignore climate change you are not doing a job properly and you are therefore exposed. The, um, the, the, the juicy bit of his opinion was paragraph 25, I think, from memory, where he talks about transition risk and mentions batteries specifically. And so what he's saying here is it, climate change is not just some amorphous, strange, greeny conspiracy theory. This is hard, hard decision-making area now. This is finance. This is real. And it will entail a transition from dirty to clean. There is no doubt about that. And that's not a moral position. This is just a standard, this is how the world is Pragmatism, yeah. It's what will happen. And so what he was saying in paragraph 25 is the transition will entail a rise of storage and a whole lot of other really interesting technologies which are already proven and working in other markets but are um, restricted here. So aggregated demand reduction, for example, which means fridges and fleets of... of, um, consumer loads can all be turned on and off as a way of managing peak demand and therefore uh, managing grid security. So all these technologies now are material risks for corporations engaged in a wide range of sectors. So that opinion is incredibly important and I think I think the technology risk piece in particular is where things could really move very quickly.
0: Mm. Yeah, and in terms of then, if we're looking, as you mentioned, batteries and coming back to batteries, because that is, it seems to be the next stage, really, of something that we have been developing already, which is solar ownership from by homeowners. In terms of um, bringing that into the mainstream and making it affordable, what role are Australian companies, so the research and developers, how much of that is happening in Australia, if at all, and then, you know, commercialization of that? how much of that, You know, what do we have key players in Australia who are really leading in this or are we not necessarily at the forefront of this like we might've used to be when it came to the development of solar?
4: Right. Well, Australia was an innovator. So if you think of the telecom repeater stations put in the desert in the seventies, they were solar battery, little power units, little micro grids. Since then, there's been, you know, waxing and waning politics and policy from governments. We haven't really stayed on the forefront of storage solar we have there there are um incredible researchers here at UNSW and ANU in particular we constantly are winning the world of prizes for the most efficient solar cells in all different kinds of categories of technology and so on storage we are still doing R&D so flow battery research is going on at a few universities and there are companies now moving to commercialize this um Australian vanadium red flow and others uh, And I'm optimistic always. I think any of them could produce the battery that is the amazing breakthrough on price and reliability and environmental performance and so on. I think it's all possible. But the interesting thing with storage is it's a paradigm breaker and that's what I was trying to get to in the essay, that solar and storage are, as I say, the internet and coal is the telegraph. I mean, these are this is a paradigm shift, it is that big. And I know Mm. it's a daggy old 70s word, but it's such a different way of thinking about energy. And you you talk to young engineers who are conservative and don't particularly care about the environment, about this, and they are excited about the business model and technology because it's a completely different way of working. Mm. So the innovation now is also in computing, it's in algorithms that measure energy, it's in big data. I'll give you an example. GreenSync is a company to watch. It's an Australian firm set up by an Australian boffin. Uh, It's not about the hardware, really. It's a software play. And they are doing a trial on the Mornington Peninsula with some funding from the Victorian government, which I think is very visionary and should be applauded. They will effectively work with the energy company, with Countrywide Energy down there. They will avoid an expensive upgrade to the poles and wires. So they'll defer some gold plating by effectively giving out technology like solar and storage and smart grid switching and manage this in the cloud. So a whole lot of people get the ability to trade their energy and reduce their consumption at times of peak demand and the computer system will trade and the computers can talk to the AEMO and AEMO can dispatch the energy. So it's an example of a huge leap forward where you're building virtual power stations almost for free out of equipment that people might already have what you're doing is you're controlling it through some smart cloud computing technology. So it's a completely different way of dealing with the crisis. Instead of building a multi-billion dollar power plant, you build a software system and then just connect up a whole lot of devices. It's mm. a completely different world.
0: Mm. Well, you're empowering individuals and consumers completely and giving them back control. Right. And, well, maybe Jay Weatherall should check that out because he's going to build a gas fire uh, power station, isn't he? Well,
4: yes, and we're hopefully putting out a research paper soon about this. And I think, you know, it might be that they need to build the gas plant and it might be that the Commonwealth needs to upgrade the snowy. I think it's too soon to rule out either of those options. Mm-hmm. And I think both governments should be applauded for having the guts to drop the fetish of neoliberalism and step back in the energy market. So good on the Prime Minister and good on Absolutely, the Premier.
0: Absolutely, for big government
4: <laughs> yes. Well, finally, government that just keeps the lights on.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, but, did that intervenes when necessary?
4: Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, when you the can't, market isn't working. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah, it's quite a revolutionary thing to do nowadays, but in, back then it wasn't so revolutionary. No. In the age of social democracy.
4: Right. Exactly. And interestingly, conservative governments used to be nationalisers of energy as well. You know, they saw it was the only way to get the get the grid built and the power delivered.
0: Absolutely. And similarly, well, when, when we had an, a vision for an NBN, that was also the point. Oh, the NBN. Yeah. Pipe dream.
4: Indeed. It's like the Walkman.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've <laughs> moved on now. We're just going to wait for someone else to come up with the next NBN and fix the old one. Yeah. Yeah. That we've wasted lots of money on. But anyway, that's fine. But um, in terms of your piece, Dan, and I guess what you wanted to get across to people, which you've touched on already, but in terms of, I guess, what really um, gets you going when you think about solar energy and the future of it, what what is it that you want others to take away from your piece and from the, I guess, the things that you're bringing up around being a prosumer and looking at, um, you know, how this really does democratise energy and, and the people that can, you know, change things for the better themselves. What exactly are you hoping that people will take away?
4: Well, I think if you, if you step back and you look at how much energy we need from clean sources and by when, the equation is something like this. So the International Energy Agency calculates we need to spend about $44 trillion globally to get to a zero carbon grid. They point out that over the lifetime of that asset, it would save over $100 trillion in energy costs. So it would actually be free in the end because solar and wind are free. So that's a good news story, but it's a lot of money. If you look at the predictions from the market, uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance says that without subsidies, renewables will grow to $10 trillion by 2040. What that says is that a quarter of the work we need to do to decarbonise could be done by the market. So this is a whole different headspace for environmentalists. We're used to thinking, well, what rules can we impose and how can we get rid of this polluting chemical because it's doing all these terrible things to the environment? This is a whole new ball game. If we could really open up the energy markets to competition and let these cloud computing um, uh, companies like Greensync and let batteries and Tesla and so on all compete, that will be a transformation of the energy system that comes not through government action as such, but through letting the market rip. And that's a whole new headspace and an exciting place for us. So I Mm. think that a lot of the work of of, uh, environmental transformation now is ironically making the market actually competitive to new technologies because at the moment what we have is really protection of coal and gas and that needs to be broken and that would be good for the consumer and it would get us a long way towards the environmental uh, uh, outcomes we want.
0: Absolutely. So, that's well, exciting to it me. It is exciting, yeah. Thank you very much for summarising that in a very um, well-articulated and inspiring way.
4: Well, we try at the Australian <laughs> Institute. We do
0: try You do, it. you do. You have a good team there. And uh, our, our regular listeners would know Richard Dennis comes on sometimes to have a chat and is always... Um, Very passionate about facts and evidence.
4: He is amazing. He's not a fake news guy. Nowhere
0: near. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for getting rid of the econo babble in this discussion, too. I don't think we even. Barely came close. <laughs> thank
4: you. <laughs> Thanks. But it was a great interview,
0: Amy. Oh, thank you. You're listening to Three Triple R FM, and this is Amy with Uncommon Sense, and uh, we have our final interview for today, and it's a really good one to cap off a very thoughtful day, um, and uh, it's about the Charles Blackman exhibition at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art and I have with me to discuss this exhibition Kendra Morgan, the curator of the exhibition. Thanks for joining me Kendra.
5: Thanks for having me on the program Amy. Uh,
0: It's a pleasure and I'll just have you come a little bit closer and bring the mic up a bit if you could. That would be great, thank you. So um, this exhibition, it is a I don't know, it seems like a fairly big landmark exhibition in a sense because it brings together so many of... a man's series, an, an artist's series that you really don't see together or haven't seen together before in in this scale. How many paintings are there um, as part of the Schoolgirls series in this exhibition at the Heidi? Well,
5: there are 56 paintings in the exhibition, so it did take a while to track them all down. A lot of them are in private collections. Um, and the Exhibition: The theme of schoolgirls was actually Blackman's first kind of sustained sequence of work as a very young artist. So, no, this is definitely the first time that uh, anyone's attempted to kind of bring them together and, you know, assess them as as a complete series. Although, I wouldn't call them a kind of coherent series as such. They're more kind of diverse clusters of works that are united in the sense that they're on the one theme. Mm. Um, They're quite experimental, in fact.
0: Yes, because they have um, a motif that is, I guess, varied throughout all of these paintings and as you say some of them um, well they are in clusters because they have similar visual um, approaches in them so um, one kind of cluster um, that I found particularly beautiful um, one of the paintings belonging to that is Schoolgirl at Kuyong," and that some of the um, things that made that really um, I guess clear that it was part of a series or part of a cluster within that was the colouring of it which was so bright blue it was this but it's it's kind of like a um, I think you say azure blue and and this really um, beautifully strong pink salmon colour that um, you know it's definitely not naturalistic um, and that's not the point it's the colour really does bring out um, the it contrasts the the, the actual uh, subject that's depicted, which is a schoolgirl walking home, presumably from school. Her her um, head is downcast. She looks a bit um, despairing, um, but you don't know um, really what her, I guess, demeanour is apart from the body language that she's got. But then these beautiful roses um, behind the fence and um, and this backdrop that is quite um, desolate for Kuyong. Um, mm. And it it is really quite striking um, to see his use of colour, that um, you know, pink and blues, and and just the, I guess, um, as you say, expressionistic um, use of of representation, because it's it's not cartoon like, but it is very um, bold in it in his use of line and in his use of um, you know bold colours, but also the, th- the thickness of lines and the dynamism that's in it. You can kind of see the person moving or the girls holding hands. Um, and, and and it is really quite a, an avant-garde and experimental, um, you know, way of painting for the 1950s and shows just, I guess, that he was part of this. In terms of your, um, you know, researching and looking back on his contribution to early like modernism in in the sense of its development and obviously modernism is a very broad um topic with many styles within that and movements but what was um what was charles blackman's place within this when he was working um at this at this point that the exhibition is showing in the early 1950s
5: sure well there's a yeah there's a few things to talk about there um blackman came to melbourne from sydney where um he in 1951 and he'd um, had an art cadetship at the Sydney Sun newspaper so it's interesting that you commented on his graphic style and the slightly cartoon-like quality which you do see in some of the work but he was really an inheritor I guess to the um, tradition of the avant-garde artists who came to the forefront of Melbourne uh, modernism in the 1940s in terms of being part of the circle of artists um, who came under you know came in the I guess orbit of Heidi so John and Sunday Reed, who were the founders of Heidi Museum were clearly art benefactors and they supported artists like Sidney Nolan, Arthur Boyd, Joy Hester, Albert Tucker, John Percival and Danila Vasiliev and all of those artists had kind of had an influence on Blackman's work when he first came to Melbourne he was exposed to the artworks by those artists through John and Sunday's collection in fact he knew some of them Vasiliev um, you know was still around and came to his studio and offered guidance John Percival he knew Arthur Boyd he knew And he worked with John Percival, didn't he, and kind of carried his paints around on
0: weekends? (laughs)
5: Yeah, they painted together outdoors at Williamstown a little later. But also Arthur Boyd and John Percival gave him technical advice and the painting that you were just discussing um, has enamel like house paint and Mm. um, because he was very poor blackman, so he couldn't afford artist qualities paint but also tempera which they helped him to make himself from you know a recipe from an artist's manual using um, egg yolks and pigments and that gives it it's chalky that lovely chalky Mm. quality that you were talking about in the pink so um, he was in many ways you know part of this um, you know spirited modernism of the 40s continuing it on into the 50s and certainly was strongly influenced by those artists associated with Heidi Nolan in particular was another um, you know strong kind of formative um, influence on Blackman he's been has seen a show of Nolan's in Brisbane in 1948 and it had a really made a really strong impression on him and there are quite a few kind of Nolan um, you know image there's quite a lot of Nolan imagery throughout the early school girls um, Mm. series that's true and
0: some people may know Sidney Nolan's work from his Ned Kelly series which is probably one of the most iconic in terms of um, well-known works by Sidney Nolan and series which you can see at the NGA in Canberra I saw that twice Um, but you as you say it does have um, a lot of similar uh, I guess ways of depicting things so you know there's a lot of um, not necessarily desert landscapes, but desolate and um, and industrial, and um, you know, inner city, but uh, terrace houses that kind of look a bit empty and quiet, and um, and yeah, I guess. It's a bit surprising when you think about the 1950s and and Melbourne and Sydney and the kind of places that he's portraying, but he's stripping back the people and the other activity and then bringing in these schoolgirls into those scenarios, which, you know, he wasn't necessarily painting from life for most of the time. He actually ended up having to paint from memory. That's right. Because as he said, it's kind of a bit weird to have a guy you know, studying... Observing children, girls. of course. Yeah. Mm. And, um, but, you know, this was not just about schoolgirls necessarily and, you know, that schoolgirls were an important, uh, you know, demographic in Australia. That's not necessarily the point. As you say, there are a lot of uh, metaphors that the schoolgirl uh, subject brings out in um, in Blackman's paintings.
5: Well, Blackman, um, yes, I'd say the, the paintings are in many ways a metaphor for her state of mind at the time. And there are a few things going on there. One was that, you know, he was a new artist struggling in a new environment. And in fact, Melbourne was a bit more industrial and not so perhaps picturesque in, in the 50s. And um, certainly those settings, you know, with the factories and brickworks and so forth of Richmond and Burnley do give a, um, you know, a kind of quite desolate, you know, as you said, um, Ambience to some of those paintings and they're quite sparse and stage-like too just with one or two figures but Blackman had quite a solitary childhood himself and was working through that in the paintings in some ways although he had three sisters and he was certainly interested in the feminine psyche as a subject as well having grown up with three sisters and, um, and his mother his father abandoned the family when he was four his mother was actually a compulsive gambler and at times she had to put the children in into foster homes when she couldn't cope. So he did feel quite isolated as a child and alienated. And I certainly think that comes through quite clearly in some of the paintings. And there's, in fact, a room full of works in the exhibition which are paintings of children, including self-portraits of men as a child. So they're not schoolgirls as such. They're other children at play. And they have a really fascinating sense of psychological detachment in some of those. Mm. There's either single children absorbed deeply in their imaginative world or activities, or there are groups of children who are all kind of involved in some kind of activity but not actually interacting with each other which I found very you know intriguing when I was curating the exhibition
0: yeah because well let's kind of um, discuss some of those um, I guess interactions or non-interactions in the paintings Um, there are some where um, you either don't see their eyes because they're looking down um, or they, they've got a bouquet of flowers in front of their face um, or they are looking away um, or they're looking uh, or they're lying flat or... Um, or they don't have eyes, uh, which a couple of them in, um, I think, like when you walk in, it's to the right of that room. I was struck by that as well, that um, it wasn't necessarily about any kind of individuals or, um, you know, even kind of individuals having specific characteristics. Um, there are even some schoolgirls that are just kind of silhouettes, um, which takes away all of that individuality. What um, do you think was behind this particular way of
5: portraying? These schoolgirls, and what do you think that it really shows? Um, well, I think that obscuring their identities universalizes them, so they become not, you know, individualized specifically. There's a, a broader message there, but also fascinatingly, um, when Blackman moved to Melbourne, he came with Barbara Patterson, his partner, who beca- soon became his wife, and she suffered from optic atrophy since birth and eventually um, went blind. In fact, her vision was failing very rapidly in the early 1950s, and Blackman was having to kind of um, become her eye and describe the environment to her and, um, you know, help her through various situations. And a lot of those references that you made to the eyes being shadowed or, you know, masked sometimes or obscured by the schoolgirl hats, to me, um, you know indicate that he was trying to express something about Barbara's situation and her blindness. And in fact, if you look at the paintings, a lot of them emphasise sensations other than sight. So, you know, the girl holding the bunch of flowers, she's smelling its perfume. In fact, it's called perfume. Quite a few of the girls hold hands. Um, it's about touch or they embrace um, or they put their hand to their hat. And, you know, there's, so it's really fascinating mm. that and it's quite a strong theme that... Um, Uh, Chris Wallace Crabb, the the poet who uh, you know, an academic and writer who wrote one of the catalogue essays picked up on, he and I were discussing it when after he saw the exhibition for the first time he said, I really feel there are so many references to blindness, it's quite um, fascinating
0: It is, yeah, and And then we go to, I guess, the next um, iteration of his Schoolgirls series, which it gets like the canvas gets larger. It becomes more monochromatic. So it's kind of charcoals and dark, darkly lit settings. And, you know, you almost think that schoolgirls probably shouldn't be in this environment because it's a bit scary. I got a bit scared looking at one of them with a big clock tower, um, you know, beaming down with its light. Um, But then there's they become floating so there's one like floating schoolgirl. um what what do you see is to that development because he does move from you know he's still using bold color in some way like it's still very bold and very um you know blanket and and he does mostly use enamel which is one of the things i was querying and then sometimes brings in oil um at times but not that often um how how does he actually, like, what is this next iteration when you move into the next room? So from the first to the directly straight after and you see these really large kind of monochromatic schoolgirls images. What do you see as that in, in kind of terms of the context of the full schoolgirls oeuvre?
5: Mm, well, for, first of all, I guess that because the series was, um, you know, the first sustained kind of thematic sequence of work he did, the first initial works are quite experimental that were done in 1952, 53, and then he kind of hits his stride. And I see those later monochromatic works, from most of them are from 53, 54, as really Blackman um, shaking off the influences of the other artists and finding his distinctive voice. And those have quite, you know, surrealist kind of qualities that you see in his later work. Um, they are a larger scale. Again, he moved, he actually worked on really quite a large scale after the 50s moving into the 60s. And they have, a you know, a haunting quality, a very strong and dramatic use of um, light and shade and chiaroscuro effects, which you also see as part of his mature style. So he's finding his distinctive iconography and his distinctive approach. And as, um, you know, you've kind of indicated earlier in the series, the schoolgirl is often, you know, alone in this desolate setting. She's kind of like this symbol of innocence in the treacherous city. And in the later works, sometimes she's, there's a sense of, you know, narrative again and beyond the frame, but like with mm. the floating school girl, she almost is like a predatory figure herself. So it's a bit of role reversal going on and yeah. that work in, is meant to be the, the, the kind of ultimate you know, final work in the series. Although the schoolgirl motif became for Blackman, like the black square mask of Ned Kelly for Nolan, he returned to it. It was like a touchstone that he came back to at various times throughout his career. Mm. So, I, I definitely see those later works as being, you know, very um, evocative of, of um, Blackman's, you know, individual style coming through the emergent hallmarks of his mature style. Yeah, because I mean, the the floating schoolgirl really takes up the picture plane a
0: great deal, and her arms are so long and in really unnatural poses that as you say it's kind of she's predatory like she's taking up the space she's you know, morphing into something other than a schoolgirl, really, um, mm. but she still is, looks like a schoolgirl. So it's just when you take a step back and go, "Gosh, that's like a really <laughs> awkward position that no one could hold their arms in," and certainly they're about double the length of her body. If
5: you, she's quite spectral and hallucinatory. And, and you know, Blackman's next major series was Alice in Wonderland. And of course, that's a levitating figure, and there are a lot of levitations and surrealist kind of twists in that series. So it's mm. looking forward to you know how he evolved his um, depiction. Of of the figure in, in in a short time frame after the schoolgirls.
0: Yeah, and let's talk about how it was received because um, the in the catalogue it references a Mianjin, um review, uh, and I pu- pulled it up actually um, to to read it, and I found it so fascinating because. Um, it's talking about, well, I'll, re- I'll read a little bit out um, that I think is quite revealing. Uh, this is by, is it Alex McCullough? Alan McCullough. Alan McCullough. Mm. So he says, um, for it is true that post-war students have shown a regrettable, although quite understandable tendency to scurry for the shelter of the nearest payable cliché not so Blackman. He seems to feel constantly that there is an immense amount of work to be done in one all too short lifetime. There is no time here for relaxation and that he really is punching way above his weight as a person in his early 20s who is you know experimenting and having his first show in his um, small kind of shed slash cabin in the back of a mansion in um, Hawthorne Hawthorne, yeah and and these um, you know art people of Melbourne come and say wow this person um, actually could be you leave a lasting impression in Australia and it's quite impressive because he does. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you know this is a positive reception to Charles Blackman but he wasn't always understood, and his um, series wasn't always quite received in the way that um, you know people like um, John and Sunday Reed, you know, received him and, and his colleagues. Yeah. What was what was the general
5: population's reception well, of his oh, work? Well, pretty critical because um, Blackman was really self educated as an artist. So he had the the art cadetship for a short time at the Sydney Sun, and had been a copy boy before then, and he'd done some you know night classes and painting, but he kind of mostly taught himself. And so he was considered untutored, which is why John and Sunday Reed liked him because they saw him as an authentic voice. Um, But he, in terms of, you know, the, you know, I guess, emphasis on academic training and so forth that was still prevalent in the 1950s. He was considered, you know, quite an artist who really had no background. And when he first exhibited schoolgirl paintings in his um, the very first solo exhibition he had at a commercial gallery in May 53 at Peter Bray Gallery, he had included in, in the exhibition a number of drawings and one of them was not of a schoolgirl, it was of a swimmer, like a, a man who looks like he's foundering in the sea off St Kilda Pair. And the d- drawing of that work was deliberately Deliberately crude and rudimentary to give it an expressive quality, but the other critics, Alan McCulloch. There being the exception, picked up on this, and said that he couldn't draw. That you know, and that that it actually created quite a controversy that drawing because Alan McCulloch reproduced it in his positive review of the show, and many people wrote letters to the editor saying, you know, what are you on about? Blackman can't draw to save himself. That's a terribly crude, you know, awful image, and um, that that really was the kind of mainstream reaction. Not many Mm. people understood what he was trying to do. There was, and you know, the the predominant tradition in Australian art at that time was still landscape painting you know a portraiture or still life and the idea that subjective experience and expressing you know kind of emotional uh, you know ideas in art was still relatively new you know that had been had come through in the 1940s and Blackman was continuing that but the the general reception was pretty negative
0: yeah and then if you're looking at, you know, his commercial, um, viability as an artist, if he's not getting this kind of, you know, glowing public reception in general, um, how did he manage to produce such a huge amount of
5: works that are you know really quite significant well he um, certainly was prolific as that interview indicates and I guess he had I think he said something like you know once the floodgates open you can't help yourself and that all you know the paintings just came out over about 18 months to two years he produced an extraordinary number of paintings and drawings you know Mm. probably hundreds of drawings to be honest and some of them are absolutely fantastic and in the exhibition but um, you know he didn't sell anything I think the read and um, Dina Vasilia fellow artists were the only people that brought anything so a lot of the schoolgirls stayed with Blackman until the 70s by which time his reputation had, had been established and then they started to come on the market and people started to purchase them so they weren't understood at the time and that was very common you know for artists of modernist artists yeah no, no market and there were no dealer galleries really in Melbourne in the 50s very few it wasn't until the 60s that that whole commercial arena took off
0: mm. and so then when you're putting together an exhibition like this which really does bring together the most number of this kind of of work with the motif of a schoolgirl. how do you um bring so many um paintings from and charcoal drawings um from disparate sources including private collectors um who you may not know actually own these pieces, like what was your approach as a curator, and how long did it take you to really um, shape this exhibition
5: and actually acquire t- for borrowing um, these works? Mm, well, ideally, you need you do need two or three years to work on a show like this. I had a bit of a shorter time frame um, in between other projects, but it did take a lot of sleuthing, and I enlisted the help of a lot of auction houses and gallerists and. Um, Agents who purchase artworks for collectors to help me with the research, and I also went through the sales records of various commercial galleries. And of course, a lot of the works were sold in the seventies, and people who bought them at that time, as it turned out, a lot of them still own their schoolgirl paintings, which is wonderful. But they didn't necessarily live in the same house that they had in you know nineteen seventy four or so forth. So there was a lot of writing of letters, and in the end, we did um, in December when I was really keen to get as many of the first paint, first schoolgirl paintings that were exhibited in 53 together as possible, we resorted to social media. And that was fantastic. We had such a great response. We found, um, uh, we put one work on Instagram, which I only had a black and white illustration of, and a, a woman rang me and said, oh, you've got my mother-in-law's painting on Instagram. And I said, oh, would she like to lend it to the show? And the family were lovely. And we were able to borrow that one. And we found another one through social media too, that had gone with Blackman to London, been sold through Christie's and by various trail you know that it was, I led to a dead end but we it, it, it what eventuated was that it was in the West Farmers corporate collection in Perth so that's right. in the exhibition too. Interesting. Yeah, so social media was yeah. fantastic.
0: <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah and also just um, finally the Heidi, like given that John and Sunday were collecting these works, you have your own significant permanent collection. What kind of works does the Heidi own and have of Charles Blackman and particularly the schoolgirls but I did see
5: some of his other works in Heidi Number 1. Mm, Heidi has a really great strong collection of Charles Blackman's work particularly from the 50s which was the decade that he lived in Melbourne and because the Reeds were acquiring them he gave them works as well. They supported him by giving him, um, you know, paying a few of his bills, paint, giving him painting materials and they also purchased works and he made gifts of works so and many of those have come to the Heidi collection from the reeds by purchase or bequest. And then um, we do have two very, very strong schoolgirl paintings and a beautiful drawing, which in fact were the the works that um, really inspired me to curate the exhibition just on schoolgirls because I thought there must be some other, um, you know, very beautiful and captivating images out there.
0: Yeah. Well, there are. (laughs) Then this exhibition really highlights it so well and is curated beautifully in terms of the movement of it and the, the order and the way things are put together.
5: So congratulations. Well, thanks, Amy. And thanks for taking such a strong interest in it. You obviously ve- look very really closely at the paintings and the drawings and it's really wonderful to hear your responses to them. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I really got into it. And, um, and I got that emotional expressiveness
0: that I think he was trying to get across. So I'm hoping that we can get people along um, to check out this exhibition. And there's also an art by twilight coming up at the Heidi which uh, people should check out. Is it this Saturday? Yeah, it's Saturday
5: night and it's actually yeah. lovely to come out to Heidi in the evening mm. and um, uh, the weather looks good, the weather Perfect, forecast yeah. and um, you know, you'll be able to buy drinks and something to eat and it's a beautiful chance to see the exhibition in a slightly quieter atmosphere Yeah, yeah. and there's some Triple R um, music
0: DJs there who will be playing some nice ambient music to match the exhibition so yeah, do get along um, highly recommend it and Heidi's just a beautiful place to hang out anyway. Thank you, it is. (laughs)
5: Especially at this time of year, it's gorgeous out there.
0: It is perfect, yeah. It's going to be my second home. Um, So, yeah, thank you, Kendra, for joining us and uh, we'll keep an eye on things. And, um, yeah, the Heidi exhibition for Charles Blackman Schoolgirls runs until... June the 18th. So you have time and you can go back and see it again.
5: Yeah, and a few public programs and talks and workshops coming up too. So thanks so much. A pleasure.
0: And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the Triple R website. Hope to see you again next time.